evidence and answers. How do we effectively engage our culture for Christ today? In other words, how do we share our faith in a manner that others will receive it well and perhaps consider giving their heart to the Lord? There are many methods out there, but are we relevant to those around us? And if not, how can we be? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat is interviewing Greg Kokel, whose ministry, Stand to Reason, does precisely that, provide guidance for sharing your faith and engaging our culture today. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, here's our host, Pat Zucran, with part one of his interview with Greg Kokel. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, how do we effectively engage our culture for Christ? What does it mean to be an ambassador for Christ? Well, our guest today has been engaging the culture and equipping Christians for decades. Greg Kokel is the founder and president of Stand to Reason, a ministry designed to train Christians to think more clearly about their faith and make an even-handed, incisive, yet gracious defense for classical Christianity and classical Christian values in the public square. Greg received his Master's in Philosophy of Religion and Ethics at Talbot School of Theology and his Master's in Christian Apologetics with honors from Simon Greenleaf University. He also serves as an adjunct professor in Christian Apologetics at Biola University, one of the finest Christian universities in our country. He hosts his own radio show. He's been doing that for over 25 years, defending the Christian worldview. And Greg has also been featured on shows such as Focus on the Family, CBN, and the BBC. And he has debated those of other worldviews, including popular atheist Michael Shermer of Skeptic Magazine and others from various worldviews. He is an author and popular speaker on college campuses and churches around the country. So, Greg, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Well, Pat, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for having me on. Well, Greg, you talk about being an ambassador for Christ, the term that Paul uses. What right. does it mean to be an ambassador for Christ? You know, uh, about 20, almost 25 years ago, and we started to form Stand to Reason, our organization, I, I, a part of my motivation was that there was too much shrillness in the communication that Christians had on their convictions with people who didn't share their convictions. It was just too much of banging heads. And that's when uh, I began to develop this whole notion of being an ambassador. That is, we want our engagements to look more like uh, diplomacy than D-Day. Okay, let's put it that way. And so at STR, as we began to develop as an organization, we, we began to focus in not just on communicating information. And there are a lot of groups who give out great information, and that's fine. But we wanted to do something more than that, Pat. We wanted to create a certain kind of individual. We call that individual an ambassador. And as I began to think about just the notion of being an ambassador, that is, if you were to choose somebody to represent you as an ambassador, if you were a president or something like that, what kind of qualities would you look for in that individual? And sometimes I poll audiences and we get lots of ideas, but all those ideas end up falling into one of three categories. First, you're going to want somebody who knows something. 
So there's a knowledge component, right? Uh, they got to know your basic message, if nothing else, that you want to communicate through your ambassador. Secondly, though, you want that ambassador to be able to take that knowledge and maneuver in a kind of a crafty way in 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 conversation with other people so there's got to be a tactical let's just call it wisdom here the right use of knowledge but even if they have the knowledge and the the wisdom in a sense to communicate and engage if it turns out that they're just nasty people well you can see how that's going to undermine their role and your mission and so the character is going to be a really important factor and these three things then kind of provided me with a, a structure to be thinking about my own development as a Christian and a way to encourage others, knowledge, wisdom, and character. And a standard reason, the way we characterize those three things, is knowledge is an accurately informed mind, wisdom is an artful method, and character is an attractive manner. And really, Pat, everything that I do as a teacher, a communicator, at radio, or public speaking, or writing, or any of that, really, as it addresses a Christian audience, is an attempt to build those followers of Christ as more effective ambassadors for Christ in those three areas, knowledge, wisdom, and character. Yes, uh, all three are great components in an ambassador for Christ, someone who can effectively engage the culture for Christ. Well, Greg, you know, I'm speaking in generalities here now. Uh How effective has the church in America overall been in engaging and trying to transform the culture for Christ? How effective have we been? Well, if the goal is to transform the culture for Christ, I don't think we've been very effective at that. Sometimes we focus on the end rather than what is going to produce that end. Now, I'm, I believe in political action and that kind of stuff because I think we have a stewardship there. But at the same time, I think the biggest change is going to come about when people's lives are changed, and that would be people who engage and encounter Jesus of Nazareth, draw from his life and have their life transformed, and then that begins to transform the culture. I mean, some cultures are just never going to go the right direction. That doesn't mean, though, that we still can't be faithful ambassadors for Christ. And so at Stand to Reason, our approach has always been faithfulness before results. Let me say that again, faithfulness before results. We don't want to get, in a certain sense, results at any cost in any way. We want to be faithful to Christ to communicate the message as clearly and as persuasively and graciously as possible, and then we'll let God take it from there. And in that regard, I think that Christians have some growing to do. I don't think they're clear on their own message. Uh, They understand the basics. After all, they are Christians, so they have put their confidence, their trust in Jesus. But in terms of understanding the bigger picture of the Christian worldview, I think, and the, and the, the Bible, there's a lot of biblical illiteracy. I think, uh, you know, we're struggling there. And especially, Pat, the ability to take those details and then communicate them in language that people can understand. We have a way of kind of communicating in religious slogans, I guess is the best way of putting it, that uh, just sound like religious noise to other people and don't actually communicate. And so our emphasis at Stand to Reason is to communicate with clarity, not using a lot of religious lingo, but trying to find other ways to explain our convictions, and then trying to do it in a most genial, friendly way possible. And there's an art to that. There, there are tactics to that kind of thing. I've written a book by that title, in fact, Tactics 
a game plan for discussing your Christian conviction. It'll be one of the things I'll be teaching on when I come out to Hawaii. And we found that those kinds of things are absolutely essential to get the church up to speed to do the job that it really needs to be doing as good advocates for Christ. Yeah, you know, Greg, for example, the whole gay marriage debate, as I was watching it unfold here in Hawaii and on the West Coast, one of the things that I saw Christians doing is that they were condemning the gay community and saying, you know, I'm opposed to gay marriage because the Bible says so, and yeah. saying it got pretty hostile and some nasty words of condemnation yeah. on those of the gay community. And that's really not how to engage right. the gay community. How could we have better reach the gay community for Christ and yet not give up and compromise our convictions as believers in Christ? Right. Well, I will say that you guys have a pretty tough job out there in Hawaii because that state is as blue as it can possibly get. Right. So that's... You, You've got a very rough environment there. And I do want to underscore that thinking that same-sex marriage is wrong because the Bible says it's wrong is a completely legitimate reason for Christians to oppose it, okay? But there is a difference between knowing and showing, all right? And so we know what's right and wrong in virtue of what God says. Now, there's some things we can figure out, I think, as a culture, even without the direct revelation of Scripture. But of course, as Christians, we want to march in time and in tune with the Scripture itself. When it comes to trying to persuade somebody else that they ought to vote a certain way in the public square on a policy issue like same-sex marriage, it does no good whatsoever, in my view at least, to just throw biblical rocks at people's heads. That just makes people angry. Now, I th- my conviction is that God tells us what is right because the things that are right are also good for us. Now, if they're also good for us, if we spend a little time thinking about the thing itself, whatever it is he's telling us, we ought to be able to see why the thing that God tells us to do is actually good, which means we should be able to find some ways to communicate about the goodness of the thing without necessarily bringing God into the picture. Now, I think this is true with same-sex marriage. I think there is a reason why marriage is the way it is, and it isn't be- marriage isn't made by culture. A-, a-, a marriage license doesn't make a marriage. A marriage is a natural institution, and it's a natural coming together of a male and a female for a purpose. And there's a reason why cultures have given marriage licenses, and here it is, because of long-term heterosexual monogamous unions, as a rule, as a group, and by nature, produce the next generation. That is, there's only one reason that any government gives a marriage license, any culture supports those kinds of unions, and that's because they produce the next generation. There's no other reason for them to be involved. And that's a good thing, because families are the core of civilization. But notice now, I've given an argument in favor of what might be called traditional marriage, without invoking the Bible, even though my argument trades on biblical truth. We have a reason why the world is the way it is, is because God made it that way. But even if you don't bring God into the picture, it's pretty clear, I think for most people, even though there's more confusion on this now than before, that human beings are bisexual. I mean, that is, there are two sexes to human beings. There is male and female. They're gendered creatures, and gendering makes it possible to reproduce. No, duh. So there is a What I've just tried to role model, Pat, is a way of approaching that issue that argues for the classical view, the biblical view, 
based on the common good, which is a good way of approaching it in a public circumstance and with regards to public policy. Now, just because you argue that way doesn't mean people are going to listen, because people don't care about what's good much of the time. They care about what they want, and they're going to find all kinds of justifications that sound moral for what they want. But when those justifications fail, then they don't care. They still want what they want. And that's what I think we're up against with same-sex marriage. You know, you give a good example there of in the public arena, sometimes we have to argue to the Bible instead of, you know, right from the Bible. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and so a wise ambassador, as he showed, knows how to do that. He can give medical, sociological, economic reasons why he's against same-sex marriage and then in the end present, oh, by the way, that's why the Bible says. So he's (laughs) arguing to the Bible, like you said. Right. You know, in order to really transform a culture for Christ, you've got to engage the ideas that dominate the culture. That's right. What are some of the dominant ideas of the culture that we need to be aware of and engage as believers in Christ? Well, there are a whole bunch of them, and every era, it seems, has its peculiar issues that are front and center. What's unusual about our era is it's a full-court press right now. Virtually every single thing that is critical to the Christian worldview and to the truth of Christianity is under attack. For example, our story starts in the beginning God. (laughs) If there is no God, there is no story, right? And so we shouldn't be surprised that there is a huge push on that issue. So we've got the new atheists, that the four horsemen of the apocalypse, so to speak, that have made a big impact, uh, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens. I forgot him because he's now gone. Anyway, their writings are having a tremendous impact. There's a lot of people that are riding on their coattails. I debated Michael Shermer, for example, and he's a very well-known American atheist. And so, you know, there's a lot of momentum in the cultural conversation just on the issue of whether God exists or not. So that's one issue. Another issue is relativism, and I'll be addressing relativism at our conference when I come to Hawaii in February. And that issue is huge. Now, a lot of people don't know exactly how to define relativism, but I guarantee you they know what it is, because they live in a culture that's thick with it. It's the idea that truth is just a matter of personal opinion, that there is no truth of the matter out there. It's just a matter of your truth or my truth or his truth, and they could all be different, but they're all just as true. Now, that's at the core is kind of nonsense thinking, because if my belief isn't accurate to reality, it can't be a truth. (laughs) It's not my truth. It's my delusion, maybe, but it's not my truth. But this is the way people talk, and especially when it comes to religious issues, and so when it comes to morality. So the idea that what's right or wrong is an individual matter, that's a huge issue right now. The idea that religious belief is just an individual matter, that there are no there's no true or false religion. They're all true, as the saying goes, you know, but all, lo- all roads lead to Rome, religiously speaking. Well, that's huge. And you can see how, as atheism gets a kind of foothold in people's minds, or maybe relativism gets a foothold in their mind, moral relativism or religious relativism, often called pluralism, you can see how that's going to begin to undermine people's confidence in Christianity and make it more difficult for us to persuade others. So those are three things that are front and center. And by the way, this whole gender thing is huge right now, but that is all tied to relativism. Who are you to say that my sexual behavior is wrong? Who are you to say even what gender I am? I get to decide for myself whether I'm male or female 
or he, she, or none of the above, or something else. And somebody told me recently that there's a listing now of 150 genders. Wow. <laughs> Somebody's got wow. a really creative imagination. But that's just another expression of relativism. Of course, the authority of the Bible, the existence of Jesus as the man the Gospels characterize, that's all big. The existence of hell, that's a big thing. Whether there's a soul or not, that's all on the table. You know, So there are a lot of areas that Christianity is being attacked today, and these are all areas that we need to have something to say about, not just for those who are challenging us, Pat, but also for ourselves. And the reason I say that is because the toughest critic anyone will ever face is himself. Yeah, when they start having doubts point. about things and they start wondering, they're going to need the goods. Yes. You know, you brought up, I think, four ideas here, the existence of God, the relativism of truth, moral relativism, and pluralism. Now, how did these ideas come to dominate the culture today? Well, I was a student, I was born in 1950, and so I was in high school in the 60s and in college in the early 60s, early 70s, and so um, that was a time of great turmoil in our culture, a time when all the ideas were being challenged, and the old ways were up for grabs, and it was do your own thing, live for today. I mean, all the music of that time reflected these ideas. This is when they said, you know, question authority and don't trust anyone over 30. That was a huge slogan of the 60s. Well, that was kind of new thinking then and avant-garde, revolutionary and countercultural. But now 45, 50 years later, that's ordinary. All of that stuff seeped into the culture, and now people have accepted it without even thinking. That religion is a matter of personal preference, there's no religious truth, choose your own flavor and morality, who are you to judge, all of that. I think that's largely, the, the ideas are ancient, but in terms of our culture, they are largely a product of the 60s. And it isn't that anybody, I think, was argued into those views. What happened is the culture just slowly adopted it, absorbed it, and now as kids are growing up, they're just absorbing it from the culture. They're not thinking it through. There are lots of serious problems with those views, but people just take it for granted. And therefore, there's a lot of people who hold the views without thinking. So if we are in a position to think through the issue a little bit more, and especially ask the right questions of people who hold those views. It's a very profitable opportunity for making a difference in their thinking, to put a stone in their shoe is the way I like to put it, and to get them thinking. Yeah, now where was the church at this time when these ideas just began to penetrate the culture? I take it the church was a little bit in retreat here, really. The faith became a personal kind of faith and wasn't really out there engaging uh, yeah. these cultures. Well, the church at that point had been in retreat for over 50 years. Right at the turn of the century, uh, the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, there came to be a, develop a change in the church. And this idea about, in a certain sense, relativizing our faith, that actually started somewhat in the church, that Christianity, there were strong attacks to Christianity that, were, that surfaced in the 19th century, in the late 19th century. So you have evolution, you have liberal critics of the Bible, you have Jesus, the Jesus studies that were denying the historical Jesus. You had all kinds of things that were going on. And instead of really rising to the challenge, which we could have done, a lot of Christianity just retreated into Christian experience. 
retreated into relativizing their experience. And so, yeah, well, ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart, okay? And people say, oh, yeah, that's fine for you, but it's not fine for us. And what ended up happening is we kind of got in a defensive posture. We circled the wagons. This is the development of fundamentalism, which I think is good in one sense in defending the fundamentals, but it was a retreat from the culture. And we gave the, we gave the culture over to the disciples of Freud and the disciples of Darwin and the, the disciples of Marx and the disciples of Dewey, and we shouldn't be surprised then when 50 or 60 or 70 years later we're just out of the cultural conversation. We're off on our own, and other ideas have come to dominate the marketplace. Now, that trend is changing, and it's been changing for the last 25 or 30 years, and that's really good, but we have a long way to go. Yeah, why do you say that that trend is changing? You know the old saying, ideas have consequences. When people start buying bad ideas, over time that begins to bear fruit and bear bad consequences. The same thing works in reverse, though. When good ideas are allowed a position in the marketplace and they are argued for well and they are represented well, that is, decent people are promoting decent ideas, okay, then those ideas become much more attractive. And in the last 30 years, we've had an explosion of Christian apologetics. And that's because in the area of, say, philosophy, and in the area of historical studies, and in the area of archaeology, and other areas as well, there has been a tremendous outpouring of good thinking done by generous, gracious people in support of Christianity. And little by little, this impact in the academy now is filtering out in the rest of the culture. And so now it is not unusual to find some of the brightest minds in the academy are actually deeply committed Christian thinkers. And they are philosophers, they're historians, they're ethicists, they're PhDs and uh, academics of all kind. Now, they're swimming upstream, of course. But, I mean, the whole thing of intelligent design and creation, this has gotten a huge boost over and against evolution in the last 30 years. Unbelievable. And uh, this is because faithful Christians have put their time in, uh, in the academy, done their homework, sacrificed so that other Christians can get the good information. That's why things are changing. You've been listening well, Pat, to an interview with Greg Kokel, president and founder of Stand to Reason, popular author and speaker and host of his own radio show. Well, Greg, one of the most dominant ideas is the relativism of truth. And you write about that in your book, Relativism, Feet right. Planted in Midair. What is it and how did it come to dominate our culture today? Well, there are some philosophical foundations to that in the history of thinking. And then there's also some I'll just call it existential foundation. That is, reasons that individual people have to find that view appealing. And a couple hundred years ago, thinkers, people like Kant, Immanuel Kant, and the individuals aren't so important, but in the history of philosophy, they've made a big impact, began to create a certain sense of skepticism that we could actually know the way the world is in itself, that we don't have accurate access to the world, that other things are getting in the way. You know, maybe our senses are getting in the way. We don't know what the world's like. We only know what our senses are telling us. If you remember, like in the 19th and early 20th century, we had a whole system of art called the Impressionists. And what these guys were 
painting were their impressions. And that's why when you look at their, their art, it's magnificent, but it's blurry, you know, because they were kind of making a statement that all we really know are the impressions our senses give us. We don't necessarily know what's really out there. So that was kind of a, a we'll just call it non-realism. We have beliefs about things, but not about reality. We don't know about reality, even though we have beliefs about reality. Now, in the more recent times, there's a new version of this, and that version is called postmodernism. And that view is basically, we also can't get at reality, but for a different reason. And the reason is, is because we have these communities that gather together and tell stories. So our view of reality is a story. It's our narrative. So Christians have their narrative, and Hindus have their narrative, and atheists have their narrative, and everybody's got their own narrative, okay? And all we know is our story. Now, we can adopt somebody else's story. We can move from one story to another if we want to. But pretty much all we can talk about is our story, because, as they would say, there is no meta-narrative. There is no big story that's over everything. There's only our little individual stories. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, Pat's books, and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Please be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Yeah.